If you love this podcast and love easy and informative CEUs, then this is the deal for you. SpeechTherapyPD.com has over 175 hours of pod courses on demand with an average of 19 new pod courses released each month. You can get ASHA continuing ed credit for every episode you listen to. And because I think you're terrific, I can offer $20 off a year's subscription when you use my code SUP20 for the insanely low rate of $59. This week, I'm joined by Raquel Garcia for her second episode on the podcast. Raquel was first on to talk about um, neonatal fees, fiber optic endoscopic evaluation of swallowing in the NICU. And this week, Raquel is back and she's talking to us about a team approach to cleft palate and 22Q deletion syndrome. Raquel is diving in deep on risk factors for cleft palate and 22Q deletion syndrome. She's talking about the different types of orofacial and craniofacial differences, um, looking into feeding and speech deficits experienced by this population, and then what is the role in the scope of care of the designated cleft palate team? So she's just kind of giving a really awesome introduction to this uh, unique population and what our roles are. My name is Leanne Porter. I'm the host of the Speech Uncensored podcast. And now let's hear from Raquel. Welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Garcia. How's it going? Oh, it's going great. Surviving, uh, being a frontline worker. So you know how that is, but just trucking along. (laughs) Excellent. Well, welcome back to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you on to talk about cleft palate and what that looks like for an SLP to be part of a team that's treating this area. So, um, Let's start with you. Tell us a little bit more about what you do, where you are, and all the amazing things that you're involved in. Um, So I am a true clinician. I work in the clinical setting. Um, I typically work in the acute care setting um, in the pediatric realm, so working with babies and um, pediatrics in our neonatal intensive care unit and our pediatric intensive care unit. When I'm not doing that, I am part of our hospital's craniofacial team. Um, so I work at a fairly large children's hospital in Florida and we're able to be a part of that team and really collaborate with different providers and, um, really help to make good decisions for our patients and guide them on their care. Um, I wouldn't be here today without mentorship. So I do have to recognize two of my mentors that really guided my path in the craniofacial world which is um, Dr. Tambi Braun and Kristen DeLuca-Diaz, who are just really um, great clinicians that work with our patients who have cleft and craniofacial anomalies. Um, I am a speech nerd, so I'm very engaged and involved in our field. I am board certified in swallowing and swallowing disorders. I am a certified neonatal therapist. I am actively involved in SIG-5, which is a special interest group for craniofacial anomalies and cleft palate. I'm on their professional development committee. I'm also actively involved with American Cleft Palate Association. I'm part of their family council committee. So engagement is my middle name because I really feel like our families and patients deserve it. Um, So that's really a little bit about me. 
Right. Excellent. Good. I love hearing about how you are involved in so many different organizations and so many different levels to like connect that patient full circle with what's available at the national level, um, what's available within our discipline for supporting other SLPs for providing highest level of services. Like this is so good. I love it. And, you know, sometimes we don't know what resources are out there. So it's always good to phone a friend. And obviously, my whole um, perspective as a speech path is to be engaged and help others. So, you know, I'm your new friend. Phone me. Email me. I'm always around. So That's awesome. Thanks for being available. That's That's huge for folks, knowing that there's an SLP out there who is interested in sharing information, supporting them, guiding them through. Um, an area that they might not even know where to begin. So let's do that. Let's begin at the beginning. Let's talk about cold palate. All right. So just to give you guys a brief overview of what I will be discussing today, I'm just going to briefly define risk factors for cleft palate and 22Q11.2 deletion syndrome. I'm going to review common feeding and speech and language deficits associated with children who may have a cleft lip, cleft palate, submucosal cleft, or velopharyngeal dysfunction. I'm going to identify the SLP's role in a cleft palate team and discuss um, the scope of team care, which is my favorite thing to talk about. I love team care. Excellent. So why are we talking about this today? Um, when I first started grad school, I did not know what cleft palate was. I did not know that we could work with them in speech pathology. And I met my first mentor, Dr. Braun, and she like rocked my world and talked to me about, you know, just how much there is a need for um, speech pathologists who specialize in this area. And that's where kind of got me hooked. And, you know, I was very fortunate that she was able to mentor me. And then when I started diving deep, I realized that it happens more than we think. Um, So a cleft lip can happen in one in 2,800 babies. A cleft palate can happen one in 1,700 babies. And a cleft lip and palate, so meaning the baby's born with a cleft lip and a palate together, is one in 1,600 babies. So when I first started school, I was like, oh, my God, that's so much. That's like a lot of babies have being born with cleft palates and being born with cleft lips. But then when you really look deeper, there's one in 700 babies being born with trisomy 21, which is Down syndrome, and one in 54 kiddos being born with um, ASD, autism spectrum disorder. So it's not as popular or not um, high occurring as we may think, but prevalent. Thank you. Yeah, we're finding. (laughs) But um, we still, it's still a specialized area. And that's why maybe there's not as many speech paths who have um, experience with it. So oftentimes we'll hear families like telling us, when they come to team or when they meet with us one-on-one, how frustrated they are. And it's, it's hard for a family to tell you like, Hey, I worked with another speech pathologist and she had no idea how to work with a, you know, my son because he had a cleft lip or cleft palate because in their world, it's very prevalent. It's happening all the time because it's with their immediate family versus in the reality, we're not as exposed to it. So there's been frequent um, report of medical providers not just speech pathologists, but doctors, nurses, social workers, having limited experience with um, infants with cleft lip, cleft palate, cranial facial anomalies. Um, There's an increase of these kiddos being readmitted for failure to thrive post-discharge because their feeding plans weren't really um, set in stone before they left. 
parents don't feel supported. So when a challenge arises, oftentimes the cleft or the the craniofacial anomalies, they blame, and it may not even be related to that. So we've had pediatricians um, not really know their resources in their area and, you know, have a baby with a cleft palate and then tell the parents, oh, all you have to do is feed them with like an eyedropper instead of referring them to a speech pathologist who may specialize in it. Or if the baby's having difficulty with weight gain, may tell them to supplement with a higher calorie um, formula instead of referring them to the team who can manage their nutrition hydration appropriately. So it's just because it's not a high frequency population we work with. So risk factors for a cleft or craniofacial anomaly, um, familial history, so knowing what's in your family tree, um, maternal age, so younger parents that are less than 20 years of age can be at higher risk as well for having a baby with craniofacial anomaly or cleft palate. Um, advanced maternal age or paternal age, and I'm in that group right now, so I'm advanced maternal age, which is kind of scary because I'm at 40, so uh, I never thought I would say that. And then um, if you didn't get prenatal care or you had um, inconsistent prenatal care, and then if you weren't taking your folic acid, and then if there's any exposures to the, u- the uterus was having any exposures to different types of medications or drugs that maybe you weren't aware could cause um, birth defects. So just to quickly go over like what a cleft lip is for those of you who may don't may not have a lot of experience with it. It can be you can have an incomplete cleft lip, a unilateral cleft lip and a bilateral cleft lip. And I don't know how many of you remember this, but a few years ago, somebody I don't remember who was talking. I think it was Wendy Williams. Somebody was talking about Jacqueline Phoenix for having um, it looked like he had like an incomplete cleft lip. And it was almost like bullying the way she was talking about him. I'm not sure if it was her. I can't remember offhand. But, you know, whatever occurred, it was more like a bullying because of the facial difference. And what that shows us on a larger level is that sometimes our adults are the our hardest critics when they're looking at someone's face and facial differences. So just something to think about. So an inc- a incomplete unilateral cleft lip is typically just like a notch of the lip that does not extend into the nose. Um, a unilateral cleft lip, so unilateral is one side, is the most common type of cleft lip, where it's only affecting one side of the lip, and it's typically um, the notch of the lip that does not extend into the nose as well. And then you can have a complete um, bilateral cleft lip that is affecting both sides of the lip. So these are just, um, you know, just something to wrap your mind around, is that when you're seeing a baby with an incomplete cleft lip is just like it looks like a little notch of the lip is missing sometimes you can't really even tell um, until they're a little bit their face has grown a little bit more and then there's something um, called nasal alveolar molding it is a um, special process like ortho like um, orthodontic piece that the dentist on the team may create to help the baby's lips Um, when they have a cleft lip, approximate better and prepare for surgery. So what it does is that its objective is to maximize the nose, the lip, and the alveolar ridge for symmetry and for um, aesthetic appearance. So the nose, with the orthodontic piece, it increases the nasal tip projection, establishes the proper curvature of the cartilage through molding, and then the lip through passive contact um, with the 
um, orthodontic piece. It improves nasal symmetry. And then the reduction, the alveolar ridge, it's really attempting to reduce the gap in the alveolar ridge to less than one millimeter before surgery. That's like the goal. Typically, um, nasal alveolar molding, it's not done by every team, and it is sometimes a little controversial in the cloth palette world, but it really, um, you can typically tell when a baby has had nasal alveolar molding versus when they have not, because the aesthetic outcome is so much different. They typically will start it um, a week after birth. Um, and the overall objective for nasal alveolar molding, which is called NAM, is an improved surgical aesthetic outcome of the primary lip and nose um, in the immediate post-operative period so that when the baby's growing and they're getting bigger, their outcome aesthetically looks so much better from the outside. You mentioned that the nasoalveolar molding is sometimes controversial. Why might be some reasons why doctors and teams prefer not to use this? Um, so the research, it, it came out of NYU, um, and the research really supports it. It is an evidence-based practice. Um, there is oftentimes different approaches of why, how you would want to um, address the, the cleft lip. So there's something called like um, lip adhesion, where the surgeon will, uh, instead of referring to the orthodontist or the dentist to do the NAM, the surgeon will manage it it's themselves, and they'll put like a teeth like a surgical teeth that kind of adhese the lip and then they do it as a two-step process. Um, some don't see the benefit, like the benefit versus the risk. Some say it's very uncomfortable for the baby. It makes the baby not feed as good. Um, it's very subjective though, those type of comments. Okay. Um, so if I'm understanding the nasoalveolar molding technique, it's um, kind of like a temporary retainer that they put in there to help prepare those structures for the reconstructive surgery. Right. So what it does is typically a baby, um, their cleft lip is, I mean, in average, they typically get repaired around three months of age, um, in average, depending on the baby, though. Um, so what they want to do is prepare the um the lip structure and the alveolar and the alveolar ridge and the nose to start becoming more aligned, more symmetrical and approximating more together. So that way, when um, the surgery is completed, they don't have to possibly stretch the material, the skin so much and and maybe not have a good of an aesthetic outcome, increase risk for more um, scar tissue, things like that. I'm not a plastic okay. surgeon. I don't pretend to be. But, you know, those are the things that I've seen in the past. Okay. Does the infant wear this the entire time? Do they need to take it out for feeding? Um, does it assist or interfere with feeding in any way? Great question. So anecdotally, perception when you first see it is like it causes the baby pain. It hurts the baby. They're going to feed terribly. Typically the first day or two, the baby does not feed well because they're not used to it being in the mouth. But then they get used to it. They feel like it's part of their body almost. And they often will feed better because now there's something kind of holding the gap in the, between their lip. Like there's a space there. Now there's like a space holder and they can feed more efficiently. Now that, that again is anecdotal of what I'm telling you. But oftentimes what I'll see also is once the NAM is off and they've gone through surgery and they're back to having a repaired lip, sometimes the baby has to go back, you know, a couple of days of not feeding good again because they're used to the NAM. 
interesting. I'm so fascinated by how our bodies adapt to things like that. And you see it happen really quickly with infants, but, you know, even as adults with, when something changes, we, we learn how to make adaptions and sometimes they're not like always for the best. Cause I'm thinking of like voice therapy when I see somebody and they've made like a change and it's become their new, their new normal, their habit. We've got to break that habit get them back to their optimal voice usage. So, Oh yeah. It's it's crazy how our body can accommodate, but with babies they are so um, moldable and adaptable that as long as the parent and the team um, supports the baby, we can really get them through that period. So it's pretty great. Excellent. All right. Thanks for that. That is such new information. I like really (laughs) fascinated by it. So we talked about cleft lip, which if you just think of somebody, we're just talking about the lip, the front of their mouth, um, which I always wonder, like with everyone wearing masks now, how that impacts our kiddos, because um, people can't see their scars. So they kind of are on a different playing field than typically where somebody would ask them, like, what happened to your mouth? So um, now I just want to kind of briefly talk about cleft palate. um, And this can happen with or without having a cleft lip. Um, so you can have a unilateral cleft palate, which is one side of the hard or soft palate having an opening, or you can have a bilateral cleft palate, which is both sides of the palate have an opening and you can see straight through the vomer bone, um, which is, you know, going into the nasopharynx. Um, just a reminder, the closure of the palatal shells occur between like eight and 12 weeks of human gestation. So sometimes something has occurred in that period that's caused the cleft palate. Um, there is a genetic difference or genetic anomaly or syndrome called Pierre-Robin sequence, PRS. And oftentimes babies that have that get a cleft palate because of what occurred during the eighth and 12th week of gestation. So what happens is their jaw is being formed. Their jaw ends up being very small. Um, which is um, micronathia, and then it could be also very far back, which is retronathia. And then their tongue, which we know is housed in our um, mandible, then it um, starts getting this posterior and um, upward positioning. And because of that, it's displaced. And when the palate shells are closing, the tongue is in in the way and it creates the cleft palate. That's why it's called a pyramid sequence, because it's a sequence of events that have occurred that have caused the cleft palate. Um, that tongue being up and back is called, I never say the word right, but glossoptosis. So just glossio is tongue and ptosis is the way the tongue is kind of hanging in the back there. Um, oftentimes cleft palates can be missed if they're small um, or if we really haven't looked in the mouth um, and done a thorough oral peripheral assessment. Um, I, I'm humble enough to say that it's happened in my hospital before where we're, we're babies in our NICU Baby doesn't feed well. We can't figure out why. They may have been there a long time. And then we open their mouth and figure out, oh, there's a tiny, tiny, some equals, um, tiny, tiny um, cleft of the soft palate. So even experts can can miss it. Um, and oftentimes babies are referred to our team because of suspected cleft palates. When it's really not, it's maybe just a high arch palate. But just, you know, it's better to refer and be wrong than to not refer and the baby has like failure to thrive. So, mm-hmm. And then next, um, there is something called the submucosal cleft palate. Have you ever heard of that, Leanne? Yes. 
I couldn't tell you much about it, but I have heard that term. <laughs> <laughs> so a submucosal cloth palate is where the mucosa, so the skin, just by looking inside the, the baby's or kiddo's mouth, looks intact. But perhaps the musculature didn't interdigitate, um, you know, when the palate was forming. So that way the palate, there is a um, submucosal cloth that's underneath. Um, classic submucosal cleft palate is with a triad. So you would see a bifid uvula, which is your uvula is like split in two or maybe has like a line, um, a furrow along the midline of the soft palate. Sometimes they call it like arrowheads, um, a notch in the posterior portion of the hard palate. And the midline furrow is sometimes called the zona pellucida. Um, so that basically means you would put a light into near the baby's nose and you're looking for blue to shine down into the baby's mouth. So that way you can see that maybe the mucosa is just very thin um, and that's impacting the palate. Maybe that's why the baby's not feeding well or um, the palate, the muscles just didn't interdigitate during, you know, in utero. Um, believe it or not, a submucosal cleft palate can often be a late diagnosis that, you know, we don't see, you know, and, and don't um, appreciate until after puberty. Um, that is because when your adenoids and your tonsils, your adenoids end up involuting. And perhaps when your adenoids were there before puberty, they were helping the palate function and they were helping the palate move better. And then when your um, adenoids involute, when you're like puberty time, which could be very different between people, but nine to 13 around that time, um, now all of a sudden you might sound more hypernasal, more na have more nasal air emissions, have food coming out of your nose, and everyone's like, "What's happening with my son? He was never doing this before. Turns out he has a submucosal cleft palate that was never diagnosed before." Um, and it's funny because usually when we get those late diagnoses, we'll ask the parent like, "How was feeding when they were born?" And nine times out of ten, the parent will say, "Oh, we couldn't breastfeed them. We had to change a ton of bottles." They were, you know, they didn't gain weight. They were very fussy with eating. And those could be some red flags as well that they had a submucosal cleft palate. So that's really like cleft in a nutshell. Um, cleft, clefting and talking about cleft lip and palate can be like a whole, um, you know, eight week semester coursework because it's really um, in depth and, and understanding the etiologies is so important. But I just want to kind of do like a little overview so that way when they're on your caseload, you have some resources and kind of kind of understand it better. Um, now, this is my favorite thing to talk about is 22Q11.2 deletion syndrome. Um, it's a very common craniofacial anomaly or disorder that we may see. Have you ever heard of it, Leanne? No, I haven't. Well, guess what? Most people haven't. But um, it is honestly the um, most common syndrome that you never heard of. Behind trisomy 21, it's the most common. Um, so it occurs in one in every 2,000 births. It is the second most common cause for developmental delay, a major congenital heart disease after trisomy 21. Um, and also these type of patients may have some other um, issues such as kidney issues, um, hypercalcemia. Um, when they're older, they might have some mental illness, things of that nature. So, you know, when it's such a high prevalent um, disorder that we may see across the spectrum, not just on craniofacial team, but it's so underdiagnosed because 
oftentimes it's a it's a feature or it's a whole bunch of symptoms that we're looking for versus just one feature. Like trisomy 21, you look at a baby, you know they have it. Versus 22Q, 11.2 deletion syndrome, it's not always so crystal clear. And what it is, is it's a micro deletion of the long arm of chromosome 22, and it's a neurogenetic condition. So oftentimes if we get a kiddo that is coming to a team that we may think might have it, um, parental, parental testing may be warranted because they may have it as well. Interesting. Um, this, you may have heard of velocardiofacial syndrome, the George syndrome, Spitzen syndrome. There's, these are all under the umbrella of 22Q11.2. There's been a um, change the name campaign. So that way that these type of kiddos that have these syndromes, it all falls under one umbrella. So that way it could create um, more services for these kiddos, not dividing like, well, you have this syndrome versus you have that syndrome because it's all really the same um, characteristics that the kiddos may have. So just because the names may be different, they all fall under the same um, types of anomalies and challenges they may have. So what the um, the team, I believe, at Children's Healthcare Philadelphia, Nationwide Children's Hospital, they're really campaigning to change the name that instead of physicians using, okay, the patient's diagnosed with the George syndrome, it's really the patient has 22Q11.2 deletion syndrome. And they're looking at two or more symptoms that would prompt the geneticist to test for this deletion syndrome. So they would be looking at, do they have congenital heart disease, which could be like hypoplastic heart, TOF? Um, do they have a cleft palate or maybe just an atypical looking palate? Is there velopharyngeal dysfunction, which we'll be talking about? Is there hypotonia, dysmorphic facial features, um, immunodeficiency? And then they may have borderline IQ. And then oftentimes these babies and these kiddos have a lot of feeding issues, including aspiration, upper airway um, dysfunction with feeding and um, severe GERD or reflux. I wonder if some SLPs listening are now thinking like, oh, I wonder if this kid I've been seeing like has this undiagnosed like condition. Like they're like putting the pieces together now. And they're like, who do I make this referral to now? Like <laughs> All the time, all the time. And oftentimes a kiddo that may have 22Q um, is not diagnosed till later because they've been to several different clinicians, several different pediatricians, several different specialists who've never even heard of it because it really is the most underdiagnosed syndrome versus, you know, because it's the, the child may only have like one feature or two features that they are not connecting the dots that it's 22Q11. Um, so we're going to be talking today about team care, um, but there is a lot of great resources for 22Q that I'll explain at the end for to um, promote like quality of life, acceptance, things like that. Um, so feeding difficulties that you may see with a baby um, or a kiddo that has cleft lip, cleft palate, 22Q, um, could be difficulty um, expressing the nipple, expressing the milk from the nipple, inefficient or ineffective suck, because they're not able to really create a seal and build that negative interval pressure. They may have nasal regurgitation, which is where the milk is coming out of their nose. And that's very pervasive. So it's not like a baby is 
refluxing and the milk's coming out of their nose. This is the baby's feeding, enjoying the bottle, and the milk just is pouring out of the nose because their their palate is not creating that seal between the nasal pharynx and the um, oral pharynx. And then they may have noisy wet breathing, um, not really because of aspiration. It could be because of aspiration, but not really because of aspiration. It could just be because of nasal congestion that is occurring because food's getting into the nose. And we know that babies are obligatory nose breathers. So the more milk that goes in the nose, they're going to sound more congested and, and wet. Um, often these kiddos will get excessive air intake, have lengthier feeds, not really complete their volumes. And parents will often tell you that breastfeeding has been a challenge. You're not able to accomplish it. Um, in in for cleft palate, and this is like a whole talk for a whole different day, but for cleft palate, um, unrepaired cleft palate, typically direct breastfeeding for primary nutrition is not possible. For pleasure and for bonding purposes, it is. So we talked a lot about feeding, which is my go-to for everything, because feeding is my like passion area for these type of um, kiddos. But it's important to also understand that children with cleft, lip, cleft palate and or 22Q or cranial facial anomalies can also have communication deficits, um, language dis delays, compensatory misarticulation patterns, and velopharyngeal dysfunction are like the top three that you may see. Um, why do language delays occur? It delays in the onset because the baby has a delay in the onset of babbling and they're not really able to create like a diverse consonant production when they're starting to babble. So we know that babies do like reduplicated babbling, which is ba, 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 ba. And then they might do like variegated babbling, which is where they have a diff whole slew of different phonemes when they're trying to talk like a little person, but it's not making sense. When a baby has an unrepaired cleft palate, they're not really able to make those phonemes like they're trying to. So then it could start delaying their language expression because they're not having the same opportunities to try to name things have the parents identify that type of thing. Um, it's important for the caregivers to be proactive and to provide a language-rich environment that maximizes like language exposure and activities for daily living, even if the baby's only a few months. So that could be like bath time, um, feeding time, floor time. And Dr. Bayless out of Nationwide Children's Hospital has a great handout that her team um, has supplied that can really give you some great tips and tricks to to provide your families to uh, maximize the baby for a language rich environment, which I think is so cool. I think it's great that you can do speech therapy anywhere, you know, like bath time, bubbles um, with a pencil. I just think that's what's magical about speech. So, um, and then compensatory misarticulation patterns, so CMA is when the phoneme is produced, but like in the incorrect place due to like a mislearning that occurred during phoneme acquisition. So what does that mean? It means that the baby had an unrepaired cleft palate and when they're trying to babble and they're trying to say pa, 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 every time they see their grandpa or if they're just trying to babble, they can't make that pressure in their mouth to create the P sound. So instead of them making it in their mouth, like they're supposed to start learning, they might say, hey, I can't make the pressure here. Babies are smart, even at six, seven months. And they might start trying to find a place where they can make pressure. And that usually is in the throat. So it could be in, instead of them saying, pa, 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 they'll start going, uh, 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 uh. And that's a glottal stop. That's them trying to produce the sound 
to start babbling and start communicating with their mom, their dad, their grandpa, but they can't. So they make it low. Oftentimes parents will tell you, oh, my baby's so cute. He's grunting all the time. He thinks he's a dog. He's always making these grunting noises. And that could be a, a red flag that um, compensatory articulation pattern is being created even at six, seven months. So oftentimes in t- when they come to team, we'll give them like home programming, teach them how to like over-exaggerate the face, show them how to make oral pressure, even if they're not able to yet. So that way we can kind of like terminate that learning pattern of compensatory misarticulation patterns. Um, CMAs, honestly, um, there's so many that are out there and there's some really great um, online tools that you can listen to, to like train your ear. But a lot of times as a speech pathologist, there's, we're not used to hearing these atypical articulation productions because we're used to like fronting and we're used to like um, final consonant deletion. We're not used to like a posterior nasal fricative because we've never heard it. So you have to really train your ear. So if you're hearing something atypical and you can't figure out what the kiddo is doing, reach out to somebody that's maybe working on their cleft palate team, email them. Um, nine times out of the 10, any of us will be willing to be like, hey, send me a sample of the kiddo. I'll see if maybe we need to like start thinking about referring them to team. Um, red flags that you might see with a kiddo that you're working with that language is intact and their articulation is intact is resonance issues such as hypernasality or nasal air emissions. Um, hypernasality is too much sound coming out of the nose. So think of like when you're talking, you're saying vowels, it should be all resonant from your mouth. So E, nice and strong versus uh, one of our kiddos, it may be coming more out of the nose and mm, like you're hearing it more in the nasal um, cavity. Versus nasal air emission is where there's like overt um, air coming out of the nose when they're talking. So they're really trying to get that oral pressure. They're really trying to be like, buy baby a bit and say it nice and strong for you using their mouth. But they can't get that nice strong. They're saying buy baby a bit, but you hear the air just coming out of their nose. So similar to like a patient that has dysarthria and they, they have like their velum is not closing off and um, helping them create that um, air pressure in their mouth because of their um, their overt weakness. This is different than weakness, but it's very similar when you think about the adult population. And then velopharyngeal dysfunction, um, it's an umbrella term, um, VPD. It refers to a condition where the VP port um, does not close the way it should when oral phonemes are being produced. So all sounds in English except M, N, and ING come out of the mouth. So every other sound, right? Um, which we know that because we're speech pathologists. But sometimes when we're working with a patient and they're having like compensatory articulation patterns and their resonance sounds weird to you. And you're like, what is the kid doing? And I've been doing this for almost nine years and I will be on team sometimes and I'll have to call somebody and be like, what are they doing? I have no idea. And that just shows you that sometimes these kids are tricky. Um, and it's okay to be humble and be like, hey, I need help, even when you're a specialist. So our, our role is to, as a speech pathologist, is to determine do they have velopharyngeal dysfunction? And if they do, what type? Because it could determine if they need an instrumental assessment, which is a nasal endoscopy, or it could be a nasal video fluoroscopy, or it could be an MRI, or if they need surgical intervention, which speech has a huge role in saying, you know, move forward with surgery, or maybe they just need more speech therapy. 
Um, Velopharyngeal insufficiency is, is used to describe when the anatomical or structural defect that prevents adequate velopharyngeal closure is happening. So it's an obligatory issue that perhaps the palate is too short, um, the palate may be there, um, the palate is not able to, the lateral pharyngeal walls are not closing in to help the palate close off the air. So that would be where you would call like velopharyngeal insufficiency. That would be something you'd want to observe through instrumentation. So instrumentation, again, would be nasal video fluoroscopy or um, nasal endoscopy. And then velopharyngeal incompetence refers to typically where the palate is working. The palate is the right length, the postpharyngeal wall, everything is the way it should be. But maybe there's something neurologically going on with the patient. They may have low tone. They may have hypotonia of the pharynx or they may have um, a genetic syndrome such as like Mobius syndrome or 22Q that is impacting how the palate moves. So it's typically a neurological impairment that's impacting the movement of the palate. So cranial nerve issues typically. And then velopharyngeal mislearning just refers to the palate learning to move the wrong way. And the speech pathologist has to teach the patient or the kiddo how to use the palate the right way. So that would go more to um, the compensatory misarticulation patterns or sometimes when they have like a phoneme specific um, like resonance issue or misarticulation. So I know that is like a lot in like one, you know, um, bite of soundbite to talk about, but you're not alone. So if you need help, there's many providers and many resources out there. Um, there's something called the Leaders Project, which is by Dr. Crowley and her team at Columbia. Um, and it's leadersproject.org. And you can find like, it's like a gold mine. You can find free material on where to start therapy, how to start therapy, what's evidence-based practice. And guess what, guys, they have free materials for you to download. So free games, free like stimulus cards, like I mean, it's it's amazing what her team has done. And I can't thank Dr. Crowley and her team enough because it's such a go-to. Like they have coloring books and, um, you know, tells you like if the patient's doing this, this is what you should do. Kind of guides your therapy. It's kind of like phoning a friend when you don't even know them. So it's really great. Um, being That's gay, awesome. Oh, it's amazing. Her team is great. And they do a lot of work um, like internationally as well with like Columbia and one of the speech pathologists on our team, Deanna Acevedo. She's heavily involved with them. So it's just amazing the reach that her team is doing. So it's great. Um, if you're working with a kiddo and perhaps you don't know where to go, um, reach out to SIG5. Post on SIG5. They're more than happy to um, provide support and services and, you know, guide you in the right direction. Um, and then there's the American Cloth Palette Association, which I'll be talking about and, and how it can um, help you kind of figure out what team is in your area and if the team is designated by them and what's team care. And guess what? They have webinars also that you can sign up for ASHA CEUs. Um, I think they're, you have to pay for them, but I mean, that's life, right? We all have to pay for something. But they're great because they really give you the fundamental education for cleft team, cleft palate and team care and things that we may not know because we don't really work with this population. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's so important that you know that you're not alone because even if you work in the schools, you work in a small community hospital or you're working in private practice, you're still part of that cranial facial team because you're working with the patients. 
So we need um, speech pathologists that are well versed in this area. So that way um, that are working in the community that they're that are um, not always, you know, the person on the team, but that are treating our patients because they're the ones that are really making sure our patients are maximized and meet their outcomes. So not that I'm biased because I'm on a team, but I really um, applaud American Cloth Health Association because they really um, mandate and designate what's appropriate for team care and how we need to provide like the treatment plans and that we're not really in a silo when we're working with these kiddos. We have to work together. So it doesn't matter if somebody is like, I'm the plastic surgeon. I know best. We're a team. We're coming up with a plan as for this child as a team together. Um, or a speech pathologist is like, well, I think they need X, Y, and Z. We have to discuss it as a team because that's what's best for the patient. So it really promotes like interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary um, perspective. So we have a team coordinator usually um, who is typically a nurse or a nurse practitioner who kind of like coordinates the team and organizes what the team is doing, um, including um, how many teams were, how many patients we're seeing, um, how you're handling COVID, how you're handling, um, you know, patient drop-offs, things like that. You have to have a craniofacial specialized plastic surgeon that is fellowship trained. Um, orthodontics, which if there's any orthodontics list, orthodontic um, professionals listening out there, we always need more of you out there for our kiddos. That we need those, like our kiddos need orthodontics so bad, and it's something that insurance doesn't always cover. So if you're an orthodontic out there, um, we need you. <laughs> Um, otolaryngologist, so you need an ENT that is specialized in craniofacial anomalies and can really um, understand velopharyngeal dysfunction because it is a subspecialty. Um, your pediatric dentist, your SLP, um, and it's hard to get onto a craniofacial team, but please know that you don't have to be on a craniofacial team to work with these kiddos. So school-based speech pathologists, you're going to see more of these kiddos than I will see typically because you're working with them on a day-in-day-out basis. So get involved with ACPA, get involved with your state organization, get involved with SIG-5, because they're really going to um, help you drive the best practice and best care. Um, you have craniofacial surgeons, so that could be like oral maxillofacial surgeon. We have neuropsychologists, genetics, um, genetic counselors, social workers, psychologists. So you can see that I, I wish every... Um, difference that was out there, like trisomy 21 and autism and anything that we can think of had teams, because I really think it would elevate the care that we provide our patients. And we know it's best management a team is approach, the team is approaching it together, because that way we can really be honest and objective versus very subjective. So American Cloth Palette Association is um, acpa-cpf.org. And it really has some really great um, avenues for you to look at if you're interested in finding a designated team, standards of care, family resources, um, provider resources, special interest groups. So we have special interest groups for different things, including ethics, 22Q, and then mentorship. Um, I know there's two clinical fellowships that are typically offered every year. There might be more. I can't remember all of them right now because, you know, I'm over 40 now. But um, Children's Healthcare of Atlanta with Dr. Risky, who's amazing. He offers a clinical fellow every year for craniofacial anomalies. Dr. Bayless and Nationwide, who is like, I have so much respect and um, 
um, admiration for her. She um, has really paved a way for speech pathologists in our field with um, 22Q and Cloth Pilot. She has a clinical fellowship every year. Um, Dr. Comer, she's in Cincinnati. I don't think she has a clinical fellowship, but if you can um, align yourself with her, she's a pioneer in our field for this area. So there's many, many, many avenues. Um, I also believe Seattle Children's Hospital has one as well, but I could be misspoken there. And then what is not like better than attending a conference from your house, um, start networking with individuals. It's kind of good when it's virtual because a virtual conference kind of takes that edge off of meeting somebody face to face because I know I'm an introvert. So that kind of helps. But the ACPA um, 78th annual conference is going to be April 28th and May 1st of 2021. And the best of the best research for speech is typically there. And that's that's a conference that has plastics, otolaryngology, nursing, social work, speech. So it's it's like ASHA on steroids because it's very um, comprehensive and very in-depth. And I will tell you, there's so many speech um, presentations and it's very chock full of researchers in speech pathology in this area, but researchers that actually treat patients. So that's a great thing. I just will tell you that. That's an amazing thing. Yeah, that's, so, that's gold right there. Oh my gosh. Nice. I will tell you, you know, I have not done this journey alone. I've always had really great mentors and individuals that have supported me. And, and I'm very humbled to know that um, I was very fortunate to um, be involved with the craniofacial team very early on in my career and being embraced by ACPA and some of the biggest researchers and leaders in our field that way. Um, and that's why I continue to give back and continue to be engaged. But Never feel like you're alone. That's number one. And it's okay to always say like, hey, I don't know this. I don't understand it. And I say that every day in my hospital setting where I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I need help. Um, and it's okay to phone a friend. Like there's many times I'll have a kiddo on craniofacial day who is presenting with speech that I can't even understand. And I have to have someone come in and listen to them with me and help me differentiate what is true disordered speech and what is maybe below fringe dysfunction. Um, and it's, you know, if you want to learn more about the specialized population, seek out mentorship, seek out engagement through SIG-5. Um, and when in doubt, if you're not sure if the kiddo you're working with has a palatal issue, has speech issues and you can't figure it out, refer to our craniofacial team. What's the worst thing that can happen? They tell you the kiddos go fine and perfect. Um, and then just they'll help you if they can. Um, but you know, when in doubt, always refer. Um, so that's really my big stick on craniofacial and um, team care. I just really believe in what we do and um, really advocate for what you know why we have to all be involved together. Rocky, is that everything? You crushed it. Well done. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. That was so good. I really love how you like reiterated how much this is a team effort, how even when you specialize in something like this, like you do on a regular basis, you still have to reach out to your mentors. You still have to reach out to other providers and check on things because um, something that is always going to be present in our field is the uniqueness of almost every presentation that we come across. Um, like we might know so much about what to expect when we're presented with a cleft palate or a 22Q patient, but then there could be like this one thing that we've not seen before in a presentation or a combination of things that 
create something unique that we've not seen before, right? It's like you can, that's one of the awesome things about our field. And one of the most challenging things is you can become a specialist in something and still be learning something new every day about it. A hundred percent. And, you know, I think sometimes there's like a stigma in our field that someone will say like, oh, well, I just work in the schools or I just work in a hospital, like kind of diminutizing what you do. But you have a bigger reach than anyone else than anyone um, can expect. Right. So you are like if you work in a school nine times out of 10, you're going to work with a child that has a craniofacial anomaly, genetic syndrome, um, atypical speech patterns. So knowing your resources, knowing about things that are out there that can help you and knowing that you, yes, you are part of our craniofacial team. Our main speech pathologist, her name's Kristen DeLuca. She's amazing. She's like, she's an amazing person, but that's a whole nother thing. <laughs> she, um, you know, she'll reach out to our school-based speech pathologist. She'll meet with them if she has to. She'll send them home exercise programs. She'll basically teach them how to be her. So that way they can give the best care with that patient. And then guess what? Then they have another patient and they're like, oh my God, Kristen, this worked. Now I can do it with this patient too. And it really helps with just elevating your practice and, and elevating the type of care you're giving. And, you know, I'm guilty of it where we kind of get stuck sometimes in a rut and you're like burnt out and you're like, this stinks. I don't know what I'm doing anymore. But at the end of the day, like if you have resources in your community, reach out to them. And we're in this together. Like, I know that's a very COVID phrase that we're in this together, but it's so true. Um, like, it's not about me or you being a podcast specialist or me being, you know, a, a cleft geek or dysphagia nerd. Like, it's about helping the patient because it doesn't matter who, you know, Raquel Garcia is. It matters if this patient's going to be able to speak and be able to be maximized before kindergarten. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. That's such a beautiful perspective that. I think we all hold to our highest ideal, but sometimes we don't always practice. And it can be hard to step out of our comfort zone and reach out to that other SLP and ask for help or to reach out to that other SLP and offer our help. Um, so yeah, let's just keep working in that direction and we'll keep working for the improvement of our, our of our field and for our patients' outcomes. So 100%. thank you so much. Oh, great. Thanks, Lee. Lee, this is a great service you're providing our community and our speech pass. So thank you so much for this. This is a great like platform. Thank you. It's a pleasure, truly. All right. Thanks for listening to another edition of the Speech Uncensored podcast. Show notes with links to resources mentioned in the episode are posted on speechuncensored.com. I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a thoughtful review on Apple Podcasts. Shout out to the hardworking team at speechtherapypd.com for their sweet editing skills and for sponsoring ASHA CEU credit for this episode. And finally, I'd like to leave you with my wish for you to nourish your mind so that your practice can flourish. 